And so me and my ambitious self took a paddleboard, and I was like, I'm going to go cruise on these, these waves. So I went out there, took this, the paddleboard, and I, I got thrashed. I was not cool at all. It was a total fail, failure. Um, and I was, I was fighting for about 20 or, or 30 minutes. I was out there for a long time. I was exhausted. And uh, eventually, I just said, I'm done. I call it quits. I get up onto the shore, and I notice something. I notice that all my stuff is gone. Did somebody steal it? Oh, no. Why would anybody want to take my, my clothes, my, like, like sweat shorts? Uh, and then I realized over 20 or 30 minutes, I had drifted at least uh, a quarter of a mile or more away from my spot, and I hadn't even noticed. I couldn't even see the boat where we were parking or the guys that were not warning me about how far I was drifting. <laughs> so I took the paddleboard, and I trudged on back, and lo and behold was the boat and the dudes and uh, all my belongings. Uh, but if you've lived here for any amount of time, uh, you would probably understand about what I'm talking about or had a, a related experience on drifting a little bit. Uh, but that can happen spiritually too. Uh, it's not that you make one big sin or one big bad decision, but over time you can drift spiritually away from the Lord. A little small adjustments to the rudder, the small sins that can veer you off course and end up leaving you very separated. You see, we heard about King David, and he made some bad, big, bad decisions, right? He, he, they were big. He coveted somebody's wife. Uh, he committed adultery with her. Um, he tried to cover up that sin by killing her husband or having, putting him in a place to where he would be killed. He, he committed some pretty bad things. Thankfully, his response when confronted was contrite and broken, but it's not just about the big sins, but it's the small, unchecked sin. Sin is incredibly dangerous, especially when it's subtle. First one step of disobedience, and then another, and then another, and then another, and finally, even the most godly people in the whole world can shipwreck their faith, as Paul says, because of a small, subtle drift into sin. And this is something we face every day. Everybody that's sitting here, newest believers, non-believers, or, or, or people who've been seasoned veteran believers for a long time, we face that. It's, but it's dangerous, and it's, and it's damning. No one is exempt, and not even the wisest man in the world, King Solomon. We heard last week about King Solomon and the wisdom that God gave him from his request in, in, in chapter 3. And then his wisdom in building the temple. And this guy was awesome. He, his God-given wisdom helped him build the temple of the Lord. His God-given wisdom helped him rule the nation of Israel well. His God-given wisdom brought fame and notoriety and respect from all the other nations and all the other rulers. But the second half of Solomon's rule ended in disappointment. Some scholars call it the folly of Solomon because he's wise, but then the second half, this wise man backslid. He backslid. He didn't finish well, because his small sins added up and ended up being one big drift from the Lord. So, kind of comes out of nowhere, seemingly, but First uh, Kings chapter 10, everything was just going so well for him. The first Kings chapter 10, this is coming right after the second half of 10, verse 14, the Queen of Sheba comes from she comes and, and, and observes and says, man, you are wise. Actually, all the stories that I heard about how wise you are, they don't even compare to how wise you really are. 
This guy was, he was cruising. He was cruising. And my favorite story of how wise he was was when two, two prostitutes came and they brought their children. Uh, one, they brought one, one child. And the other one, they, they were fighting about whose child it was. And he said, take a sword, cut it in half. And the, the true one said, no, that was my, my child, but, but let her have it. I want him to live. I just love how wise Solomon was. He could identify even, it's just, it's just awesome. He was flying high. And then chapter 10 hits in verse 14. And this is, if you were an Israel reader, this is where you would actually start to go, wait a second, it's not just chapter 11. It starts back a little bit further than that. So chapter 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, which came from the explorers and from the business, business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. Wow. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold, three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put, him, put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made great ivory throne and overlaid it with with the finest gold. <coughs> the throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests, and two lions standing beside the armrests. While twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the step, uh, on the six steps. The, li- the like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's dr- drinking vessels were made of gold. Wouldn't that be nice? And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea when the fleet, with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, silver ivory, apes, and peacocks. This... This is just adding to his legacy, right? We read this and we go, oh, this is just adding to how awesome he is, how, how grandiose his rule was. So much finances, so much gold is all coming. Skip down to verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 1,200 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the, with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as a sycamore. So, moving on to chapter 11 now. Chapter 11. Now the king Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, whom he married. Um, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the people, you should not shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father has done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Two more verses. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. It's a lot of of, of Scripture, but I really wanted to just get all that in together. We tend to think of Solomon's folly as one built around simply lust. But we can see that there's a lot more, and we're going to talk about this, a lot more to the story than just just that. Uh, Believe it or not, Solomon's drift began earlier, and it was progressive and somewhat subtle. It was a drift. So there's four kind of primary uh, movements uh, of Solomon's drift. It went one, two, three, and four, and they're in your notes. Solomon's drift came progressively through, number one, a disregard of God's law. A disregard of God's law. So now that we read that entire passage and you have it memorized, we're going to have a quiz about it. Turn to Deuteronomy, back a few, a few books. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. I just want to read three verses. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 17. When you come to the land, this is about the laws concerning Israel's kings. When you come to the land, God's saying this, that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers, You shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not, okay, this is really important. He must, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. These, these three primary prohibitions that I want to highlight are very important. First, the king should not acquire many horses. Second, he must not acquire many wives. And third, he must not acquire excessive silver and gold, lest his heart be turned away. This was the beginning of Solomon's folly. This was the beginning of his drift. This is his disregard for God's commands, disregard for God's law. God said specifically to not deal with Egypt. And what does Solomon do in 1 Kings chapter 3? He marries Egypt, the Pharaoh's daughter. And then he also does some buying and selling of of chariots with Egypt at the end of chapter 10. God said specifically not to acquire excessive gold, yet here in 1 Kings in chapter 10, we see that every year Solomon collected 666 talents, which equals 25 tons of gold. But, But the writer was very clear about talking about six, 666. This, this number is very specific because it, reveal, it, it reveals, it means 
Six is the number of humanity. It means this is, this is something that he was choosing. He was doing for himself. But God was blessing. God was blessing. But there's a very specific reason why they put that specific number in there. I think I said specific about 12 times. All right. Uh, God said specifically to not acquire many wives also, lest your heart be turned away. And what did Solomon do? He got a thousand of them, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, let's just stop for a second. Okay. Can I address the elephant in the room? How can that happen? Um, I have a hard time remembering my two kids' names. How can you remember a thousand wives' names? It's just, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how that can psychologically happen, how that can affect someone. But anyway, uh, but what did it say that they did? Verse 3 of chapter 11. They turned his, this is the interactive part of the sermon. They turned his heart away from the Lord. A thousand ladies, and they turned his heart. Frankly put, Solomon's drift began with a poor view of God's law. God gives boundaries and limitations for a reason. He, he speaks his law for a reason. There's boundaries. It's for protection and provision, but also and ultimately to give glory to himself. But Solomon chose not to take seriously the commands of God. He disregarded it, and he did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 6, it says he did what was evil in the sight of God and did not wholly follow the Lord. This is the same issue with Eve in the garden, right? When the serpent came to Eve and the serpent said, did God really say that? He starts to doubt. He doubts the law of the Lord. He doubts the word of God. Did God really say that you're going to die? You're not surely going to die. In fact, you're going to be like God. He downplays the law, the word of God. God put those boundaries there for a reason. But Solomon, he downplayed it. He disregarded God's law. Brothers and sisters, spiritual drift initiates when you care more about your preferences, more about your passions, more about your prosperity than you do about God's beautiful and holy word. That's really important. Because we all get tempted bluntly, like for big sins. We all do. But it's the small ones. And it starts with you not believing in the promises of God, not looking at the word of God as your authority. And we start to walk away and drift away from him. The second step, right? They, they add to each other. The second step is a distorted view of self. Solomon had a life of nearly unbroken success. He had accomplished more than any other king over Israel ever had or ever will. He, and, and it said, verse, verse 9, did you pick up on it? The Lord appeared to him twice. God appeared to, God appeared to him twice. What? That's amazing. And this isn't like what we, like we, we, we can talk about, you know, our prayer, our times in prayer. Oh, God just showed up. God, God, God came and spoke to me. And uh, this is, God, God appeared to him. And God blessed him with wisdom. But all these things made Solomon lower his guard. Paul Tripp, on, uh, Paul Tripp, he, on why most pastors fail, he wrote this. You can forget that you are made in the same, of the same stuff. So talking about pastors, uh, the same stuff that, of the people that you preach to. And you forget to be on guard against the indwelling of sin within you. If you ever cease to be a participant in grace 
and only a preacher of grace, you are headed for disaster. Can I read that last part again? If you, are, if you ever cease to be a participant in grace and only a preacher of grace, you are headed for disaster. How do we know that Solomon lowered his guard? How do we know that he, distorted, he had a distorted view of self? Because of what he chose to trust in. Kings were prohibited to gather horses so that they don't put their trust in them. Kings were prohibited by God in Deuteronomy to, to avoid gathering wealth and, and gold all to themselves so that they don't put their trust in wealth. Kings were prohibited to gather ex- excessive amounts of wives so that, they, that their trust in God wouldn't be turned. In ancient times, kings would marry daughters of other kings as a way of guaranteeing peace between the countries. So the point is, one king is much less likely to attack another king if he's married to his daughter. Does that make sense? So, frankly, oh, and you, you might have picked up on this, actually. It, it says in verse uh, 3, he said 700 wives. What does it say right after that? They were princesses. This was actually much more political than anything. It was more political than it was necessarily just sexual. This was a big deal. He, he put his trust in himself. He's saying, I'm going to take control with, with the money, with the chariots, with the, the, these women politically so that nobody's going to attack us. Instead of, God, instead of trusting that God's going to protect the nation of Israel, he took matter into his own hands. He's striking deals with enemies so that, so that oh, nobody's going to come and attack us. He, he's putting the trust in himself as though he could actually do that. Deuteronomy said not to do this, but trust in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, put your trust in God to provide and protect, not in your own possessions and not in your own power. But number three, we see a destructive posture of his heart. How many times? What was that word that you kept hearing in the first nine verses of chapter 11? His heart. Six times in nine verses, it talks about his heart, his heart, his heart, his heart. You can, you can turn back to First Kings, if you'd like, uh, 11, if you haven't. His heart, uh, don't, don't uh, enter into mar- marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away their, your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was his heart of David, his father. He loved many foreign women. He, he clung to them. So it, something that might have started off political, it went further. He clung to her. He liked what it said about himself. He liked what it said, what the world could think about him. When you posture your heart towards creation over the Creator, you will lose every time. Romans 1, 24-25 says, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. This is exactly what his problem was. He cast his heart, he postured his heart towards things that won't satisfy. 
He postured his heart towards the creature rather than the creator. So when Solomon cast his heart to wives and concubines, his heart was swayed and turned from God and towards other gods. Verse 4 says, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of of David, his follower. When you don't value the word of God, when you view yourself too highly, then what you cast your heart on is the next step towards a spiritual drift. So let me ask you this question, church. What gets you up in the morning? What are you meditating on or what gives you life? Do these things cause you to worship your creator or do, they, or do these things cause you to worship you? Finally, the, the fourth step of, in Solomon's drift was a deliberate compromise in community. Make no mistake about this. Who you surround yourself with matters. It matters. Whom you marry, whom you hang out with, either they will push you to God or they will pull you from God. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. Either they will push you to God or they will pull you from God because we have a sin nature. Pulling, it's just natural. Solomon's choices in marriage turned his heart away from God and it culminated in blatant idolatry. This is the first commandment. No other gods before me. Note, we need to note this. Solomon didn't go from worshiping God one minute to worshiping all these other gods the next. It was a slow process through the influence of his wives. Remember, these women were princesses in other nations, and they served gods in different places, and they had different practices. But our God is a jealous God. He he desires glory from us and wants us to glory in nothing else. And these wives and the And their worship practices ultimately influenced the wisest man who's ever lived, a man who the Lord appears to twice and pulled his heart away from the Creator. When you surround yourself, who you surround yourself with is vital in your walk with the Lord. Ironically, the person who speaks about this the most and most clearly in Scripture was Solomon himself. In Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 20, He who walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. This makes sense in talking about our friends, but for some reason I've noticed people who don't recognize this with marriage. They don't recognize this. I see, when I see Christians, a Christian who is intentionally and romantically pursuing a non-Christian in marriage, Scripture gives no ground for that. The term, this is cheeky, but the term flirt to convert should be a joke, not an actual thing. Like we should flirt to convert. That's, that's not, 2 Corinthians 14, 6, 14 says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Now this does not mean that you're, if you're in a, in a, in a marriage and you're a believer and your spouse is not, maybe, maybe it started off that way or maybe, it, uh, maybe you became a believer later. This does not mean you walk away from that covenant. This does not mean that, don't hear that. But it does say, if you're on the front end and you're walking towards that, that, that don't be unequally yoked because you're much more likely to be pulled away than you are being pushed towards God. Oh, but I can change them. No, no, you can't. If you compromise here regarding marriage or in community, your walk with the Lord is at stake. So those are the four distinct 
steps that Solomon took causing a drift from God. And he, he opened up his eyes, and at the end, he's so far, he's half a mile down, down the beach. Disregarding God's law, viewing himself too highly, casting his heart on worldly things, and choosing to surround himself with poor company. All that leads into a series of reflections on Solomon that I believe the Lord has for us today. There are three quick lessons that I, I want to remind us as, as a body of believers. One, awaken yourself to the subtlety of sin. Awaken yourself to sins that are subtle. It's important to be aware that sin is sneaky. Sometimes temptations come at you full force, and people make big sins uh, that demonstrate a separation from God, but also often it's the subtle ones that set your heart off course. So you have a big boat, a big cruise ship. All you have to do is one degree turn, and eventually you're going to be all the way going the opposite direction. It doesn't necessarily mean the big turns in sin. It is the little one, the little two, that turn us off course. It's sneaky. Um, nothing is more dangerous in Christian life than the subtlety of to sin that you haven't dealt with. Charles Spurgeon, he said this, at first they can be scarcely seen, and they seem as though you could break them at any moment, right? They, then they become silken bonds and firmer still. The greatest moral catastrophes happen not all of a sudden, but by slow degrees, end quote. We see that with Solomon. He chose to doubt God's word and discount God's law, to think higher of himself, and he moved away from the humility that we saw in chapter 3. He's like, God, give me wisdom because I'm a child. I don't know how to do my duties. And he moved away from that, from humility to pride. And eventually those subtle sins gave birth to idolatry. Le and the lesson two is discern the consequence of spiritual drift. Frankly put, spiritual drift brings severe separation. Just as I was a quarter of a mile down the beach, unknowingly separated from my group, the small sins done repeatedly bring big consequences in the long run. Look at, uh, let's look at what uh, God says to Solomon in uh, verse 11 through 14 of chapter 11. We'll keep reading. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However... I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And then the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. The consequence for Solomon was that his entire nation would be torn in two. Solomon's sin affected the entire nation of Israel. He disregarded God's law. He disobeyed progressively moved away, and it affected the entire nation. So every king after this, it's, it, it, it's dealing with the separation of it, the, northern, uh, the northern tribes. There's ten, the ten northern tribes. They make up the nation of Israel now. And the southern tribe around Jerusalem is Judah. So it's a divided nation now after this. That's a big consequence. And furthermore, God raised up adversaries. And the rest of chapter 11 talks about that. Hadad, the Edomite, Rezan, the marauding leader, and then Jeroboam, the Ephraimite. Consequences of spiritual drift are harsh, difficult, 
and painful. And C.S. Lewis describes it like, like this. C.S. Lewis describes subtle sins like a cancer. A cancer. A cancer that never stops growing until suddenly you realize it has eaten away your desire for God. Lesson number three, finally. Hope in the suffering servant, not in the healthy, wealthy, and wise. If anything, the fall of Solomon shows us that we need something more than just wisdom. We need something more than wealth. We need something more than lots of chariots and lots of possessions. We need something more than many, many wives or many, many husbands. We need to have something more than just having a healthy lifestyle. Because these things in themselves can't save, and frankly, they steal your trust. Solomon began to trust in his wisdom, in his chariots, in his wealth, and ultimately in the gods of his wives. And what's interesting is our temptation to put our, tr our trust in others, particularly gifted, godly people. God had promised, right? This is so cool. God had promised to David that his son would set up an eternal kingdom where he would rule in wisdom and all the nations would look to them. Now Israel naturally assumed that meant his direct son, Solomon. But scripture points to another descendant. There's another descendant of David, one who centuries later who possessed all the wisdom of Solomon yet was not surrounded with wealth, was not surrounded with horses nor wives, but his primary purpose was to save sinners by suffering on a cross. Israel was putting their trust in Solomon, actually, because he was wise and he was wealthy. But I need to call us to remember, Jesus alone can save, no other God and no other king. Church, place your hope in him, trust in him. He's the author of grace and can restore spiritual wisdom even after, like Solomon, we fail and we mess up and we drift. So beware of sins, Beware of the subtlety of sins and hope in the author of all wisdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we know that we cannot earn favor with you. We don't try to avoid sin just so that we can earn brownie points with you. But we want to be repulsed by sin so that we can be closer to you. Lord, protect us from spiritual drift. Protect us from putting our trust in our own wisdom or in our own ways or in our own wealth. Lord, protect us from putting our trust and our hope in the, in, in, in the people around us and help us put our trust and hope in you. Father, I thank you for this body of believers. People who are challenging and encouraging one another in, in healthy, godly community. And I pray that we choose to surround ourselves like that. We surround ourselves with people who are pushing us to you, not just pulling us away from you. We pray that you redeem the relationships that are difficult, uh, relationships that we have of people who are far from you or don't care about you. We well, we don't want to run away from any of those, actually. We, we want to be used in those. So give us courage and boldness. Give us a sensitivity to, to sin. 
Give us your eyes and give us your heart. Help us to love those around us who are far from you. But help us also to see ourselves when we're choosing to disregard the things that you clearly commanded of us. Thank you, God, for Solomon and his wisdom and all the things that he did, but we also thank you for the the lessons we can learn from, from his struggle and his drift. Protect us from that, God. We love you. In your name, amen.